Our Aquinas 101 program has reached 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. Will you help us reach more souls? Support our mission by sending a gift at thomisticinstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. No spaces. That's thomisticinstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you, Father Ambrose, for the kind introduction, and thank you to Father Dominic for the invitation to be with you on this wonderful celebratory uh, event uh, for the celebrating the death of and legacy of Thomas Aquinas. This is a particularly poignant moment to be thinking about the future of Thomism, given the recent passing of Monsignor Whipple. And I didn't realize until I heard the news about his passing on Monday just how orphaned that someone can feel after losing a doctor father. And of course, Monsignor Whipple is a, was a giant of a scholar, someone who has a bright light in the field of Thomistic studies. I think we've all read his Metaphysical Thought volume, but also each of his articles was in its own way a, a, a small earthquake in the field of Thomistic studies. He never wrote anything without having something really substantive and, and important to say. But also, one of the things that many of us who studied with him know is just how devoted he was to his students, particularly. Um, he was also very hard on his students, and one of the most terrifying memories of my life is sitting in his office during dissertation supervision meetings with his pen going slowly down the page and stopping at every single misplaced comma, um, mistranslated Latin text is very uh, particular about each detail and very meticulous reader, but also very, a very kind uh, director. And, and particularly, I wanted to mention a couple of stories that to me exemplify his uh, great care and kindness for his students. So as you may know, about nine years ago, when he started having various health problems and he had to go in for an emergency sur uh, surgery, I think this was in 2014, and all of our, the news went out to his students who were very worried about him. I called him. I was studying in Germany at the time. Um, it was the day before he was supposed to go in for his surgery. And of course, I was very worried about him and ask him how he was and hoping everything was going to be okay. And the thing that was foremost on his mind was that he was finishing reading Brian Carl's dissertation, which you remember him teaching here. And the only thing that he was thinking about at that moment was how do I f finish reading this dissertation in time before I go into surgery so that if anything happens to me, he'll be able to graduate without any delays. And that was, the, that was just the only thing he was thinking about. And then I also remember secondly, when I got my first job, um, I got the call from, from, the, from the department at Seattle University. And of course, I called Father Whipple right away. And he said, oh, what time did you get the call? And I told him it was around noon. And he said, oh, I thought that might be it. He said, I was offering mass for you just at that moment. And that, to me, is just the epitome of how much care that he had for his students in the midst of all of his his brilliance, he was a, a truly good and, and loving teacher, and we will certainly miss him. So my talk today is on um, 
Aquinas's perennially valid philosophy. Father Legg asked me to speak about the uh, future of <laughs> Aquinas in, the, in philosophy today, which is a little bit outside the normal wheelhouse in which I operate, which tends to be more historical, but I'm going to do my best. The first thing we're gonna talk about is some sociological observations about Aquinas in the field of philosophy, but then I'm gonna spend the second and third parts of the talk discussing how um, we can think about the prospects for integrating his philosophy into contemporary thought. So in 1982, Kretzmann, Kenny, and Pinborg published the Cambridge History of Later Medieval Philosophy. And the editors conceived of this volume as one of the first systematic attempts to introduce medieval philosophy comprehensively to a contemporary analytic audience. Or, as Kretzmann infamously put it in the introduction, to release medieval philosophy from the Catholic and neo-Thomistic ghetto in which it had been previously studied. As he wrote, quote, by combining the highest standards of medieval scholarship with a respect for the insights and interests of contemporary philosophers, particularly those working in the analytic tradition, we hope to have presented medieval philosophy in a way that will help to end the era during which it has been studied in a philosophical ghetto with many of the major students of medieval philosophy unfamiliar or unsympathetic with 20th century philosophical developments, and with most contemporary work in philosophy carried out in total ignorance of the achievements of the medievals on the same topics. Kretzmann's infamous ghetto remark is now 41 years old. How much has the situation changed since then? On the one hand, it is certainly the case that medieval philosophy is no longer considered a stagnating backwater between the innovations of Greek classicisms and the modernity of Descartes. It is now unimaginable to publish volumes or hold conferences on the history of philosophy today that completely ignore the medieval period. Medieval achievements in logic, phenomenology, ethics, and metaphysics are now more widely known and referenced in their corresponding philosophical disciplines. Societies for medieval philosophy here in the United States and abroad are flourishing. However, the situation looks grimmer on other counts. When searching through the faculty of all of the top 10 ranked programs in the United States, for whatever rankings are worth, one finds in that august list exactly one scholar specializing primarily in medieval philosophy, Calvin Normore at UCLA. Expanding the list to the top 20 programs, one finds exactly seven total scholars primarily specializing in medieval philosophy. Five of them work at the only Catholic university in that group, which is Notre Dame. The numbers are revealing. There is certainly evidence that Kretzmann's hopes have gradually been fulfilled. There has been a greater embrace of medieval philosophy by contemporary philosophers and a greater engagement with contemporary ideas by specialists working in medieval philosophy. But that change, I believe, happened largely within the part of the philosophical community that already believed that historical sources are worth reading as intelligent interlocutors who can contribute interesting ideas to today's philosophical endeavors. Over the last 40 years, that subset of philosophers has abandoned old prejudices against scholasticism, once viewed as a servile adherence to Aristotle held hostage to theological orthodoxy, and come to embrace scholastic thought as a fertile ground of potentially exciting ideas. 
Nevertheless, within the same time frame, the broader philosophical community does not seem to have become measurably more convinced of the value of medieval philosophy for philosophical education and research, at least not as measured by that ultimate sign of academic market value, the tenure line higher. How has all of this affected the study of Thomas Aquinas? How commonly cited is the common doctor among philosophers today? Thomas Aquinas remains the most familiar, I would say, of the household names among medieval philosophers, certainly. He is often even treated, for better or for worse, synonymously with medieval philosophy, so that it is not unusual to find non-specialists referring to the medieval view of X and then referring to the position of Thomas Aquinas. The rising tide of interest in the study of medieval philosophy has surely lifted also the boat of the study of Aquinas. Indeed, in some philosophical arenas, Aquinas does serve as a reference point for certain specific philosophical positions. And here are two of the most prominent examples. I'm not going to say anything surprising here. In metaphysics, a distinction is commonly drawn between regular hylomorphism and Thomistic hylomorphism, or sometimes hylomorphic dualism. And the latter is the view associated with Aquinas, that the human soul is the form of matter, but can also survive without its matter. And one might mention here scholars like Anna Marmadoro, Rob Coons, and David Odeberg, among others. Indeed, Aquinas seems to be the model invoked by philosophers aiming to defend an immaterial human soul more often than perhaps any other historical figure, even more than Plato. And I rather think this is because Aquinas defends the survival of the human soul while also insisting that material embodiment is essential to the human person. So Aquinas' valuing of our embodied existence perhaps sweetens the immaterial soul pill in a field where materialism remains the default view. The second example is in ethics, where natural law theory continues to be closely associated with Aquinas. And Aquinas is also a reference point for any attempt to combine virtue ethics and law-based ethics into a single system. And here, I think, especially of scholars influenced by Elizabeth Anscombe, such as Candace Vogler and John Schwenkler. Still, it would be overly rosy to say that all is well in the field of Aquinas studies if there were such a thing. In the end, when professional philosophers do draw their inspiration from Aquinas, most of them nonetheless prefer to call their theories neo-Aristotelian rather than use the less widely esteemed label neo-Thomistic. More, serious, more seriously, Aquinas' prominence has generated a backlash among some scholars who judge Aquinas to be seriously overstudied at the expense of other equally ingenious medieval figures such as Peter the Chancellor, Peter John O'Levy, or Peter Oriol. And when I wrote that list, I realized I had only selected people whose names with, had Peter in them. There are other medieval scholars not named Peter who are also very important, but those, that's my list. At centers of medieval research in Europe, I know of only two PhD students writing dissertations on Thomas Aquinas, though Aquinas remains a common dissertation topic in the United States. This cultural shift has resulted in an odd imbalance according to which most specialists in medieval philosophy are less interested in Aquinas than ever. And yet Aquinas is almost the only medieval thinker from, uh, from whom non-specialists, both academic and non-academic, want to hear in discussing contemporary questions. And I'm absolutely certain that despite my boundless faith in Father Legg's organizational talents, a Hervéus Natalis Institute could not have enjoyed the same explosive growth and success as the Thomistic Institute has today. 
All these phenomena, I believe, come down to one inescapable reality. Namely, that regardless of the general fate of medieval philosophy in the academy, Aquinas himself remains preeminently linked in most minds with the Catholic tradition. Or to use Kretzmann's less palatable terms, Aquinas has resisted being rescued from the ghetto. That is surely a disadvantage for his reception within today's heavily secularized discipline of philosophy, and I believe at the last count, the percentage of academic philosophers who profess agnosticism or atheism is something like 93%. But professional philosophers are not the only philosophers. And for a broad philosophizing audience, that status that Aquinas has enjoyed within Catholic thought since Eterni Patris and even earlier comes with an advantage. Aquinas carries and continues to carry an immense cultural authority, not just for Catholics and Christians who value their own tradition, but also for anyone who thinks that classical philosophy has ideas worth recovering. In fact, I do not know of any other philosopher from the Western tradition who carries as much cultural weight as Aquinas does. And I think this means that in the foreseeable future, Aquinas will continue to be looked to for philosophical insight. And we will continue to need philosophers who can communicate his ideas to a world thirsty for truth, not because no other great thinker could have served that role, but because Aquinas, for various historical reasons, is the one who can uh, command some attention today. His bellowing continues to be heard. And thus I would urge that philosophers working on Aquinas have a special responsibility to find ways of bringing Aquinas' anthropology and moral theory into dialogue with contemporary human problems. To understand our own embodied condition, much more study is needed on Aquinas' understanding of imagination, animal cognition, and passions. In the moral sphere, some socially urgent topics such as bioethics and just war theory have benefited from decades of excellent work, but very little has been done on other also urgent topics such as racism, environmental justice, and poverty. And in general, it seems to me that Thomistic ethicists have yet to fully unpack Aquinas' insights on our positive, open-ended obligations toward our neighbors who bear what he calls, quote, a nature we ought to love. And I, as a student of Father Whipple, I feel obliged to emphasize here, we don't need to do this by saying, what would Aquinas have said about X? This is a formulation that always, um, uh, Father Whipple would always say, well, we don't know what Aquinas would have said about X because we didn't ask him. Um, so, but we can still ask what, what Aquinas' principles, the ways that they can be developed to apply to contemporary problems. There are other opportunities as well in the sociological developments I've been describing. Within the history of philosophy, as more attention is directed to lesser known scholastics of the 13th and 14th centuries, as well as to the philosophies developing in the medieval Islamic world, those of us who love Aquinas have new ways of getting to know Aquinas himself better in light of his historical context. While many ingenious and valuable developments occurred in Baroque scholasticism and eventually Neo-Thomism, the thinkers of each new era lay down another layer of sediment over Aquinas' grave in responding to the challenges and assumptions of their own times. And eventually one may begin to lose sight of what Aquinas himself saw and thought. So recent reorientations of historical research I would uh, argue, have the value of opening up a path back to Aquinas himself in his own historical context. 
This Aquinas of history is more tentative, developmental, and fallible than the Thomas of faith. But this historical Aquinas also has startling, refreshing new things to tell us. For instance, as I've argued in my own work, he has things to tell us about the light of the agent intellect or the realism versus representational debate, which have become lost or forgotten as the result of intervening centuries of interpretation. So I would argue that we're at a time of beginning to reap the rewards of a more historical approach to Aquinas. By reading him as he was in conversation with Albert and Bonaventure and Peter of Tarantasia and Henry of Ghent and sources like Alexander of Aphrodisius, Avicenna, Averroes, and the Liber de Causis, who knows what new and exciting ideas we will uncover next and how those ideas may have value for our work today. Second section. But I don't want to speak today only of changing historical and sociological currents in the study of Aquinas. Because there's a deeper and very important conceptual problem here. Namely, whether the common doctor can truly be common to many generations of philosophers across the centuries. And today, 750 years after his death. In other words, does Aquinas have something perennially valid to offer us, a so-called perennial philosophy? In his 1989 book, From Unity to Pluralism, Gerald McCool writes, quote, no one denies that other and more recent systems have discovered truths to which Thomism in the present state of its development cannot do justice. The Thomist's duty, however, is not to yield his place to the proponents of these other systems, the challenge before him is rather to absorb these truths and integrate them into the system structured by the changeless concepts of St. Thomas's perennially valid metaphysics. As a philosophical and theological wisdom, Thomism is not historically conditioned." End quote. Writing just a few years after Kretzmann, McCool is similarly concerned with the interaction of Aquinas and contemporary philosophy but by inverting the direction of the exchange. While Kretzmann sees himself rescuing medieval philosophy from the ghetto of Catholic neo-Thomism, McCool's challenge is how to integrate truths salvaged from the outer darkness outside the boundaries of Thomistic metaphysics. <laughs> Neither Kretzmann nor McCool arguably are very interested in a genuine exchange of traditions. In both, the tendency is rather one that can only be described as pillaging valuables from the other side. So the question before us is this, is it true, as McCool puts it, that St. Thomas offers a perennially valid metaphysics structured by changeless concepts which are not historically conditioned? In the manner of Aquinas, we might say, in a way, yes, and in a way, no. Consider, for instance, how the new scientific discoveries of Galileo, Newton, Darwin, and Einstein systematically obliterated the entire medieval vision of the cosmos, the cozy nest of cosmic spheres within spheres swaddling the earth at its core, or the coordinated chain of cosmic agents simultaneously acting to generate and move each creature on earth through solar heat. These details don't matter, Thomas likes to argue. The underlying metaphysics remain untouched. We just have to explain that atoms too are composed of form and matter, or that God's act of creation unfolds over longer time periods than we expected. The basic concepts of form and matter, efficient cause, act and potency, all remain changeless and untouched. Or do they? 
If we understand a mollusk's form is dynamic, either capable of evolving under environmental pressures or harboring a potential for forms other than itself, is that still the exact same concept of form? If we drop the view that changes in the world around us are the result of a chain of concerted physical causes at every level of being, from God on down through the universe, simultaneously acting as one cause to produce a single effect, if we drop that view, what happens to the unity of the Thomistic cosmos? Can we still assume that a single metaphysical system applies across the whole cosmos if we can't be sure that the whole system is continually singing with one voice? The challenges of updating Aquinas' cosmology are nothing, of course, compared to discussions about human beings. Is the Thomistic concept of the human being also a changeless truth? And if so, how do we make it accommodate more recently discovered truths about the human person? Here's an example. John Paul II beautifully described human beings as being bound by what he calls the law of the gift. He's, quote, man who is the only creature on earth which God willed for itself can fully find himself only through a sincere gift of himself, end quote. Of course, Aquinas speaks of gift-giving and well-wishing and interpersonal communion, but no discussion of self-giving in quite the JP2 sense leaps off the page. Or consider the UN Declaration of Human Rights, which includes universal rights to seek asylum in another country and rights to be spared exile, torture, and slavery, rights for which one will search in vain in the Summa Theologiae. Now, I would be the first to rush out to highlight all sorts of remarks by Aquinas that would plug in nicely to these later insights. It's the sort of thing that Thomas have to learn how to do. However, if we're being fully honest, we also have to admit that Aquinas fundamentally understands perfection in terms of optimally functioning natural powers, an approach that is not an ideal conceptual match with JP2's insights on self-giving. And again, if we're being honest, we must admit that Aquinas fails to categorically exclude enslavement or exile, not as a merely practical omission, but as a matter of principle. So the best we can do without willfully twisting texts in some cases is to propose that Aquinas' basic concepts are friendly to being expanded to accommodate newly discovered truths about the human person, but that the expansion might require some remodeling of the basic concepts. What I'm suggesting is that basic Thomistic principles are not an unchanging ahistorical algorithm such that new developments are just a matter of learning to apply the algorithm to a new data set. Rather, the algorithm itself cannot help being transformed by its new application. And yet, what's the point of being a Thomist, or indeed of studying Aquinas as a great philosopher at all, if one doesn't think that Aquinas has some kind of perennially true insights to offer us. Now, this is obviously not a new problem. McCool is already describing a debate that goes back to the early 20th century about the future of Thomism. And I don't expect to offer some brilliantly new insight in this short space. What I want to suggest drawing on some thoughts about the, the workings of the human mind in Aquinas is simply this that we should think less of the basic Thomistic conceptual framework and philosophical concepts in general, 
we should think of these less like a set of changelessly valid axioms and more like an image of what is. In other words, we should approach concepts and even theories not like axioms or collections of propositions with truth values, but rather as thoughts, which are themselves images of things. Concepts are thoughts. Theories are also thoughts. And thoughts are images of being. So when we talk about Thomas's concept of form, what are we saying? We're really talking about Thomas's thinking about form. And when we put it like that, it becomes clear right away that there can be no such thing as a changeless concept, not for human beings in this life anyway, because we do not have any such thing as a changeless thinking incapable of further growth or regression for that matter. That is why Aquinas states that, quote, our cognition is so weak that no philosopher could, uh, could ever perfectly investigate the nature of a single fly, which is why one reads that a philosopher spent 30 years in solitude in order to know the nature of a bee, end quote. This is not some kind of skeptical manifesto on Aquinas' part, but a sober acknowledgement of the open-endedness of human knowledge, which never reaches completion in this life. And if the nature of a fly is so hard to grasp, what about the nature of a human being on the horizon of the bodily and non-bodily worlds? And then there's metaphysics, the knowledge of being as such, which is even more indistinct than the nature of a fly or human being. How many years would we have to spend in solitude to achieve perfect thinking about the nature of form and matter, acted potency, efficient cause, that's definitely more solitude than is good for us as human beings. <laughs> what makes someone a Thomist then, I would argue, is not an adherence to a set of changeless metaphysical concepts construed as a set of perennially true propositions. What makes someone a Thomist is the conviction that Aquinas' thinking expresses something of a perennial reality and the desire to think those thoughts along with him. It is the impulse of a child demanding to share her parents' headset so she can hear the music too. Now, if concepts are thinkings, then what Aquinas bequeaths to us today is not a set of static propositions, but the opportunity to think living human thoughts, thoughts measured by things themselves. And Aquinas describes truth as the measuring of our concepts by things. So truth is a thought measuring up to things. And this insight is the key to the whole problem we're considering. The mistake, I think, would be to think of truth as a correspondence in which there are only two options. So sometimes people say that Aquinas subscribes to a correspondence theory of truth. I think this is a, a modern notion of truth which does not, in fact, match up to Aquinas' view. So on that view, there would be just two options, true or false, like a light switch, which is either on or off. My parents used to tell me that if you leave the light switch in the middle, the, the house will burn down. <laughs> but measuring up, in contrast, can occur along a gradient. The floor plan can approximate the home's real dimensions better or worse. A portrait can be 
better or worse at capturing St. Thomas More's integrity. And similarly, a thought can be truer or falser to the thing that measures it. A zoologist understands a panda better than I do. That means her thought is truer than mine, and it has gotten gradually truer as she learns more about pandas. This is possible because thought is itself a kind of being, as I have argued elsewhere, and because agents make their patients like themselves. Thus, just as any being is generated in the likeness of its agent, so too thoughts are essentially natural images that beings make of themselves. Beings shape us in their likeness as they cause in us the being of thought. Now importantly, an image, as we all know, is not on or off, true or false, relative to the original in this dichotomous way. Rather, there's a gradient. An image always expresses something of its original, however obscurely, but it might be better or worse at doing so. Also importantly, images are only ever partial expressions of the original. For instance, a play versus a Holbein portrait versus an impressionistic sketch each capture something different of St. Thomas More. Or to use another example, the great phenomenologist Edmund Husserl writes wonderfully about how although our experience of an object changes in viewing it from different angles, we are still able to knit those partial experiences together into a single ex integrated experience of one and the same object. These two aspects of images, that they first express something of the original, but secondly, do so only ever partially, illustrate why we can be optimistic about the possibility that thought reflects being, but also why one single human thought is never complete and sufficient. Thus, on the other hand, Aquinas insists that when a, what a thing, that something happened to this sentence. Aquinas insists that when a thing impresses itself upon our intellect, what it impresses is always some indivisible unity that is the thing's own nature. It is the nature of the crocodile that makes my thought crocodilian. It gives what it has to give, making an image of itself. And yet, on the other hand, that initial indistinctly glimmering impression of the essence is very dim, very incomplete. In formulating a definition of a crocodile, I can make my thought more distinct, but the image still falls short. And indeed, Aquinas himself describes at least four different modes of formulating definitions, one for each of the four causes, which go together to make up a more complete image. The glory of human intelligence is to be able to bring these various partial glimpses of reality together into a single whole, a unified perspective. We build these holes when we combine single thoughts into arguments and theories. Yet those thought combinations still remain images, human artifacts that never cease to be measured by things and thus can never be fully adequate to their original. Some conclusions. What I want to suggest then is that the thought of the common doctor is not a body of knowledge, nor a set of principles, nor even a set of texts. 
it is just thought or thinking, an act of vitality, a human performance. As such then, Thomism cannot be an ahistorical project, but must always be an activity of a concrete historical human person, thinking thoughts that a, a particular imitation of being practiced by this human being here and now. Moreover, if concepts are thoughts and thoughts are images, then ideally basic Thomistic concepts will not be left unchanged by the incorporation of new insights over the ages. Rather, they will expand and develop into truer and richer images of being. They should be like a cake that each new generation has to learn how to bake, continually integrating new ingredients and techniques. Though, of course, things can equally go in the other direction. We might have forgotten what exactly grandma did for the light texture that now eludes us. Sometimes these expanding new insights might be water from the well of other philosophical systems. Other times, they might come through a historical rediscovery of Aquinas' authentic thinking, sedimented over by the archaeological layers of time. But I rather think, and this is perhaps the provocative bit of the conclusion, that new insights may not always be humanly commensurable with Aquinas' systematic thinking. No thought image can express the whole of being. And sometimes our minds might not be big enough to reconcile full, to fully, to fully reconcile two particularly good thought images. So to use the analogy from Husserl, we might see a large-scale reality of a human person from one true angle, perhaps John Paul II's phenomenology of the gift, and then from another, the Aristotelian theory of perfection of natural capacities, and yet be unable to integrate them completely into a single perfectly unified whole. And perhaps to do so would be to adopt the perfect unity of divine thinking. But that divine thinking needs no images because all beings are rather an image of it. And that is why I have to disagree with the widespread picture of the perennial Thomistic philosophy that McCool sketches. On that picture, Aquinas' philosophical concepts constitute a permanently fixed outline against which the truth of all subsequent philosophical developments in any system can be judged. The task of future generations is simply to fill out that outline with more details. New philosophical insights have validity on that picture only insofar as they can be detached from their own non-Thomistic conceptual structures and integrated into the pre-existing structure that Aquinas provides. And it's worth noting that this is exactly the procedure that's analogous to the one that many Thomists have criticized in the attempts by analytic philosophers such as Kretzmann to repatriate into their own systems, decontextualized, the bits of truth that they find in Aquinas and other historical thinkers. But I would argue instead that thought is a living thing, and the insights that are part of a system are not mechanically interchangeable bits, but rather organs of a living thought, the activity of a human person, that draw their life precisely from the philosophical system in which they are connected up into an image of the whole. One cannot always transplant an insight unharmed from its original home into Aquinas' theology, any more than one could, say, transplant the dignity of the human person from Aquinas' theocentric cosmos into an atheist materialist framework without subtly damaging that notion of dignity in itself. 
Yet surely there is a way of profiting from thoughts that can never be fully integrated into one's own systematic thinking. Perhaps the exchange of new insights between philosophical systems may lead away from their originals in order to reform one new unified thought image. Or perhaps their practitioners must become adept at switching back and forth between philosophical images in the quest to glimpse a truer vision of the whole. And though my suggestion here might sound like it has a distinctly postmodern flavor, I like to think that Aquinas himself may have glimpsed something of the challenge of dialogue across philosophical systems in his works written toward the end of his life, in the subtle comparisons he draws between the way of Aristotle and the way of the Platonists, in De Substantiis Separatis, and also in his commentary on the Liber de Causis. For humans, then, the door is always open to becoming shaped anew by being, to becoming a truer image of what is, to thinking truer thoughts and living up to the measure of things more beautifully. And it is insofar as Aquinas can continue to help us think such thoughts today that he continues to live up to his name of common doctor. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.